We're continuing our exposition of the book of Romans, and we are finishing chapter 9 today. So, <clears throat> as we do here, uh, when we read the scripture to show the Lord reverence for his holy word, let us please stand as we read Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. <clears throat> the word of the Lord, the infallible authoritative word of God, reads as follows. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, you are the Father of all mercies. Amen. And this morning we come to you knowing that we have fallen ever short of your glory. And yet we have nowhere else to turn but to you and to fall on your mercy. For you will not turn us away. So Lord, we pray that through your word this morning, we may be shown how we can become righteous before you, which is by grace and by faith alone, because of the righteousness of Jesus. May your Holy Spirit then guide us, teach us, and draw us to you this morning. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so I've titled today's sermon, Pursuing Righteousness, Faith versus Works. This theme of Pursuing righteousness is something that, as we give it thought, is actually not unique to a religious setting. Let me elaborate that a, a bit. In a general sense, <clears throat> everyone everywhere is pursuing some type of righteousness. Everyone. The concept of pursuing and declaring oneself righteous is not exclusive to Christianity or Islam or whatever false religious system is out there. Being pursued as righteous or as virtuous is something that everyone, everywhere, is pursuing. We see this in the context of somebody thinking that they're a good person or a good member of society. Could be a way in which our goodness, so to speak, could be measured. How much value added do we have for our society, etc. Interestingly enough, as I was looking into this topic, there was a pure research poll exactly on this question. What makes someone a good person? Everyone has opinions about that, right? This survey was actually taken last year, and the uh, results were published in late November. This was based on 19 countries of quote-unquote advanced economies. I have some results up here in the board. So as you could see, not surprisingly, when you ask the vast majority of the world in this advanced economies, quote-unquote, 
So sophisticated people, right? What makes you a good person? This is, I feel like I'm at work actually <laughs> describing a chart, but be it as it may. Um, less important, very important. At the top of the list, voting, living a lifestyle that reduces the effects of so-called global warming, getting a COVID vaccine, that's very, very important according to the world. And at the very bottom, just to summarize, Attending any type of religious service regularly, not at all important or not too important. Do these results surprise us? They should not, right? The world is seeking a type of righteousness that is going to do nothing good for them. Nothing. And as we think about a global movement of anti-Christian sentiment, Christians can easily be enwrapped and get carried away with being a good, virtuous person according to the statutes and the standards that the world has set. So then it is not surprising that the culture we live in is not only secular, it is anti-Christian. Well, having this attitude then, we can see how when we speak to somebody about the gospel in the streets, even perhaps our family members, they are convinced that they are a good person. They're pursuing this worthwhile causes. They are doing their best to advance the better of humanity. They are following the science, declaring that men could be women and vice versa. You see that? Scripture has quite a lot to say about human beings trying to justify themselves. Let us think of the opening scene of humanity, Adam and Eve, when Adam sinned. When God said, Adam, where are you? Adam said, actually, I had nothing to do with it. It was a woman you gave me. What did Eve say? Actually, wasn't my fault. It was a serpent's fault. So then, self-justification goes back to the opening scene of the Bible. There's nothing new about it. Today, people are trying to justify themselves by doing good things and trying to say that they're good in society. But even from back then, the theme had already been set. Now, the common denominator of this failed or fake justification of self-righteousness, whether religious or secular, and I would argue that all of it is spiritual, is look at what I'm doing. I'm doing pretty good. As a matter of fact, I'm doing better than fill in the blank, right? The first thing that I'll point out scripture has to say about this is the following. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to men, but its end is the way to death. Okay, so all these things people are pursuing to be virtuous, to be a good and contributing member of society and doing all these things which in and of themselves, they may not be bad. But when we become consumed with chasing that and that only to be better, to be good, it seems something worthwhile, but in the end, that in itself is the way of death. 
not only physical, but spiritual. So then, with that, as a way of our introduction, what is Paul's main point? Getting back to the text. I will propose to you is this. When it comes to becoming righteous before God, he's telling us that the Gentiles believed and it was counted to them as righteousness. Whereas the religious Jews who had the oracles of God, they had the right standard, but the righteousness was denied because they said, I could do that. Let me work at it. And hence, today, the text we will study takes us back to what I would say is the central theme of the book of Romans. That is, that God justifies the ungodly by faith. By faith. Romans 4, 5 says it as follows. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That summarizes the thesis that Paul will expand for us here. So let us take a look at the first thing we're going to see. Justification of the Gentiles. Verse 30. <clears throat> it says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. So when Paul says, okay, so what should we say then? Paul is saying, based on everything I just told you, I'm going to draw a conclusion. And the conclusion is twofold. He addresses the conclusion for the Gentiles, and he addresses the conclusion for the Jewish people. For the Gentiles, they were once far off. They are now adopted into God's family. For the Jews... Although they had all the advantages of being shown favor by God, only a remnant of them were saved. So Paul is grieving that his Jewish kinsmen are left out of God's promises, which God's people are now the church. And he's pointing to the fact that after all was said and done, the Jewish folks missed the boat. Whereas the Gentiles, those that were not even looking for God, had no concept of there is judgment coming, at least revealed in scripture because the scriptures were not theirs. They stumbled upon the gospel and they believed it and they became righteous. Now, let us consider the concept of righteousness. We can use these biblical terms. Many times we assume that we all have the same definition, but we don't. So let us just briefly say something about righteousness. In biblical terms, or in its ultimate definition, righteousness is not being a good person. That's not it. That's according to the worldly standards. According to what the majority vote says, it does not count. Or it does not count according to whatever we come up in our minds of what a good person is or what righteousness is. So righteousness before God is according to his standard. 
a biblical definition would be a status of rectitude, a legal status that satisfies the moral requirements of God. Okay? A legal standing before God that satisfies God's requirements of perfection. Now, when we talk about the moral requirements of God's character, that's the Ten Commandments carried out to perfection. And the key is that that righteousness, if it is to be obtained, you cannot go halfway and say, well, give me half credit, yeah? Nope. You cannot go 99.99% and say, all right, like, catch me a break. Like, just push me over so I could have a hunt. Nope. And that is the bad news. That we, re we realize that if we are to meet the standards that God requires in order to be good, in order to be righteous before him, it is unattainable. And yet, Paul is saying, that thing which is unattainable by human merit, the Gentiles have attained it. This is mind-blowing stuff. If you're a Jewish person hearing or listening or reading Paul's letter, this is mind-blowing. What do you mean? I'm a Jewish person. I should be straight and good and everything in order with God. And Paul says, wrong. Those dirty Gentiles are the ones who actually obtained the righteousness that God required. The Gentiles were not looking to be justified. As a matter of fact, what had nothing to do with God. While lost in their sin, as Romans chapter 1 explains, they stumbled upon how to become righteous. That is, please get this, through the hearing of the gospel. When they heard the gospel being preached, God opened up their understanding and saved them. Through trusting in the perfect work of Christ. There's a brief illustration here on how God sees sinners before coming to him. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Reads as follows. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's before. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have become brought near by the blood of Christ. And then one more, Acts 13. This is when Paul and Barnabas were preaching at Antioch, getting in trouble for preaching the gospel. And we're told this, Acts 13, 48. <clears throat> and when the Gentiles heard this, remember the Gentiles, pagans, wanted to do nothing with God, literally worshiping idols at this, at this very time. <clears throat> it's happened to them. It says, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. There it is. What does God use to save people? The preaching of the gospel. Do you know who's going to be saved? You have no clue. I have no clue. But as the gospel is preached, as Paul and Barnabas were preaching to these pagans that were literally worshiping idols, through that... God save them. So Paul is saying the Gentiles are far off. No hope. They didn't care about God. 
They didn't know God. And all of a sudden, the good news, if you will, fell on their lap. Like, oh, what's this? this? Wow, yes. Like finding the pearl of great price. That when somebody finds it, it says the kingdom of God is as such, he will go and sell all that he has to go and buy that field because it's so valuable. The gospel fell on their lap, as it, as it were. And this is why Paul emphasized that they believed, they had faith. As we were told earlier in the book of Romans, which is a quote from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And hence, those that were far off, those that were, you know, otherwise never to be right or even know about God and just head into eternal judgment, heard the gospel and believed they trusted in the work of Christ. That's the Gentiles. Now, secondly, let's look at the second point. Let's consider the failed attempt to righteousness from the Jewish folks. Verse 31. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So Israel, the chosen people of God, through whom Messiah would come and came, to them belong the oracles of God. To them belong the promises. To them belong the covenants. Somebody would ask, what happened? What happened? It says that they pursued a law. Pursued, that word in the language there, it means to strive with great effort, to participate in an activity, to chase after this constant drive to chase, to work, to do to participate. These were the people of Israel. And although the people of Israel knew God's law, they strived with great effort to be righteous by it. Notice that it says when they pursued with such great effort, it says that that law would lead to righteousness. Theoretically speaking, if somebody could keep the law, it would give them righteousness. However, that is a demand that is unattainable because while anyone can give it their best shot at fulfilling the Ten Commandments and become righteous by doing works, no one is able to do so. No one. We are tainted with original sin. And even the thought that we could actually be good so we could be accepted by God, that's a sin itself. It's a sin of pride. So why did the Jews not succeed in attaining the righteousness required by God? Well, he tells us in the next verse, 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. <coughs> so the people of Israel, collectively speaking, because some of them were saved. There was a remnant, right? Instead of looking at the God of all creation, instead of looking at his law, his expectation from them, and think, wow, there's no way we can make it. God needs to make a provision. 
And God told them he would make a provision in the Old Testament. They still took it upon themselves. They had the right standard, but they had approached the standard completely wrong. <clears throat> I thought of an example of what giving it a shot to fulfilling the law would be. It's a bit silly, but I think it illustrates the point. Go to the next slide. Let's say that you are being chased by a pack of angry, hungry lions. And you're approaching that cliff. And you think, wow, I think I can make it. I think I'm going to be fine. But as you get closer and closer to that edge, and you're being chased, you realize the reality. Want to give that jump a shot? Knock yourself out. You could try it. Knock yourself out. So there's some choices there. Not even attempted because you know you'll fall into the abyss and just come to terms that you're going to be mauled and, and eaten. Or you could be foolish enough to think, if I just try hard enough, like I'm going to get that boost, I'll make it. Or a third option is, there's no way. Unless somebody intervenes, there's no way. There's no way. My brothers and sisters, such is the law of God. You will not make it. You will not be a good person in the eyes of God. Never. So unless you fall on God's mercy and say, there is no way I'm going to make it. Unless there's divine intervention, I'm going to die. My brothers and sisters, when we realize that, it is God's calling and drawing us to him to say, I have provided the way of escape. Galatians 3.11 says the following. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There's that quote from Habakkuk again. So then, somebody has righteously asked, even in the book of Romans, back in chapter 3, then why the law? Why bother giving us a law that we cannot keep? Paul answered that already, but let's recap Romans 3, 19 and 20, it says, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So a couple of aspects here. God's law is to shut the mouth of every proud person that says, I can be good enough. I actually don't need Jesus. I'm, I'm fine. Like, that's good for you, but nope. The law of God shuts every mouth because it shows that we are wicked, that we are sinful, fallen, and on the way to condemnation. And looking at that law, it brings us the knowledge of sin. Have I ever put... Anything else above God? Yes. 
Have I ever lied? Yes. Have I ever lusted? Yes. Go down the list. If you're with me, you will fill all of them, just like I have. Nevertheless, because God is holy, he still demands that the law be met in order for justification to occur. How is that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the last portion of verse 20 and verse 21. It says this, Paul speaking here as well, says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to that. So this is, stop right there for a second. This is the call to every person that has ever lived. On behalf of Christ, we as Christians should be imploring to them. Be reconciled to God. This means that you are not okay with God. This means that you are at war with God. And you're not going to win. So therefore, the call to be reconciled, to make things right. And then it says this, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so here's the glorious truth of the gospel. Him who had no sin, meaning him who met the whole law, him who was able to accomplish the requirements of perfection of the law, him God Almighty in the flesh, Jesus Christ, was made sin. He was punished. He was crushed for our transgressions. So that in Him, in His righteousness, in His sacrifice, we might become the righteousness of God. The right standing of humanity and of each individual person that is right before God has to go through that. No other way. No other way. Not through a family plan. Not through following a religion. Not through, no. No other way. Through Jesus only. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By trusting in the perfect work of Jesus and Him being put to death for our transgressions. So the solution to the human impossibility of becoming right before God is that God provided himself, Jesus, God Almighty in the flesh, complied not halfway, not 90, 99.99, 100% with the requirements of the Holy Law. And that is what the Jewish folks rejected. They said, no, 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 no. We don't need that. Let us give it a shot. Remember the diagram of the guy jumping? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we got this. Let me try this. And to this day, the Jewish folks, the religious Jews, as a collective, still reject this. So then, let us look at the fact that faith in Christ is a stumbling stone. Not only to the Jewish folks, as the context here, but to all those that reject Christ. Pick it up from the tail end of verse 32 to 33. It says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Now, a stumbling stone. What is a stumbling stone? It is something that gets in the way of what you want to do. Like, get, get this out of the way. Like, I'm busy. Like, I need to do something. I need to build something. I don't need this. <clears throat> and here, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28 and Isaiah chapter 8, in which God the Father foretold that from Zion, he would bring forth the king. He would put Messiah there for the salvation of all those who believe. For those that are not going to be put to shame if they trust in him. And the way in which God chose to bring King Jesus into the world was the opposite of what the Jewish folks expected. Christ came in a seemingly insignificant way. A humble birthplace, humble parents, no formal education. And then after Jesus died and resurrected, the quality of his followers was nothing that the world looked upon us as, as great. It was the simple people. So in the pursuit of building their own right standing before God, the Jewish folks rejected the chief cornerstone. In other words, the main foundation, the main piece of the puzzle, if you will, the main ingredient to have a right standing with God, which was made clear and foretold about in the Old Testament, both to Jews and to everyone else that read it, they saw that as an obstacle. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22 and 23 say the following. It says exactly that. It says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. There it is. The gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. I don't need that. Like, get that away from me. Like, let me be righteous. On my own. And to the Gentiles, they're like, what, the gospel? Oh, that's foolishness. That's so stupid. If you've done enough witnessing, I guarantee somebody has told you, like, that is really dumb. <laughs> the gospel? To which I often reply, that's actually what the Bible says. That the, the gospel will be foolishness to you because you are perishing. A stumbling block. So what did they reject? They rejected God's only provision of salvation. God's way of fulfilling the law perfectly. By having faith in Christ. They rejected the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 5 and 7 summarize this. It says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laid in Zion in stone. A cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So a builder who rejected to build correctly 
will see his construction collapse. If there's a faulty foundation at the first attempt of an earthquake shaking it or a strong wind or a strong storm, that structure will collapse. And here we're told that we are building up a spiritual house. And everyone has built up a spiritual house because we all have spiritual beliefs. And whoever builds that worldview, that spiritual house, without putting Jesus as the main piece, their worldview, their spiritual house will collapse. It will fail. Reminds us of the beautiful words of the hymn, appropriate in this occasion, that say, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus, the chief cornerstone of our belief, of our salvation. So what have we learned? Let us look at three quick points of application. First, we see that the Gentiles believed the gospel and they were saved. Whereas the Jewish folks, they wanted to get to work. So is there salvation by works? Like how does works play into salvation? Is there salvation by works? Yes, there is. <clears throat> yeah, you heard that right. But only the works of Christ will do. Only the works of Christ. This is not only a, a warning then for the Jewish folks in this letter. It is a warning for all of us, for all of you. Thinking that you may have earned God's favor because you've done something good. And you perhaps have done something good. You perhaps are being diligent to follow God's commands to the best of your ability. But please, my brothers and sisters, my friends, be reminded of this. You have zero merit before God based on something you've done. Zero. As a matter of fact, whatever you have done and you think that made you righteous before God, it is actually counted against you, not for you. Please think about that. Salvation is by works, but that is the works of Christ, his perfection. Let us trust in that, not by ours. Secondly, this salvation that Christ brings is so complete and it is so efficacious. It is so true that you can find rest in that salvation. You find peace with God. You find rest in the perfect work of Christ. So then let us be reminded that God's mercies renew every day. And every time that you fail, the grace of God restores you. The Holy Spirit of God convicts you. If you are a child of God, he will not let you go on on sinning. He will discipline you. He will bring you back and you will repent. And in that, let us find rest. Stop trying to work to gain God's favor. 
Then lastly, Jesus remains a stumbling stone. He still is a stumbling stone. For us that are Christians, when we look at others that are not Christian, people are okay with you being a good person and you being generous and you helping and you even sharing little nice quotes of scripture. But the moment you announce the exclusivity of Jesus, ah, no, 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 no. That becomes a stumbling stone. So Jesus remains a stumbling stone for others and then for ourselves, even as Christians. We tend to forget that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our spiritual infrastructure. Jesus, therefore, should be at the center of how we operate our lives. There is no such thing as, I'm a Christian, but I need to go do something, so let me step out of my Christianity. No. Jesus is the central piece of your spiritual house, of your worldview, of your daily dealings. So don't stumble over that. Operate from that. Because if you don't, you are rejecting the kingship of Christ. And be warned, you can't do that. Christ is king. And secondly, you will only cause yourself more grief in your sanctification. If you are a Christian, and you are not operating your life with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, I repeat, one, you're not going to be able to do it. And secondly, el huevo trabaja doble. Because you didn't do it right the first time, you're going to have to go and redo and do things right. Don't cause yourself more grief in your sanctification because of disobedience. You'll have enough grief as it is. If all is going well, which that's kind of how we always want to operate, right? If all is going well, let us be reminded as Christians that is only going to be temporary. So anchor yourself to the chief cornerstone. If things are not going too well, same thing. Anchor yourself to the chief cornerstone, that is Jesus. In your daily devotion, in your daily prayer, in your daily scripture reading, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all those other things that you need will be added to you. Don't stumble on Jesus as thinking to yourselves, I have so many issues, so many problems, so many burdens, and I have... My church, I have my Bible, I have my prayer. Like, I don't need that right there. You just stumbled on the chief cornerstone. That is what you need. Where else are you going to go? Operate your life with Jesus as a chief cornerstone. And do not stumble as the Jewish folks did. But rather, be glad that as a Gentile, I think that's all of our cases here, that we were grafted in. And that we believed, and that belief in Christ is counted to us as righteousness. Let us rejoice in that, my brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your provision, for your way of escape, for Jesus as the chief cornerstone of our faith, of our life, of our practice, and of our obedience. 
Holy Spirit, give us conviction to agree with you that we fall short daily. And Holy Spirit, give us the power that can only come from you to will and to do what you command us to do. Lord, and if there's any brothers or sisters who may be discouraged because they might know that they're not walking right, I pray that you may not only convict them and give them the strength to repent, but that as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we will come alongside them to encourage them, to correct them, even to rebuke them, and to lovingly help them to correct path into the path of light, which is you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.